welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to Episode 5. And before I bring on the guest, um, just a couple of thoughts about Counterpunch again, as I try to always preface uh, these episodes. Um, we're, we're providing this podcast, Counterpunch Radio, for free, partially because we want to be able to add a new dimension to what Counterpunch does, to be able to bring a new angle to a lot of the stories that you find on the website, a lot of the things that you find in the magazine. But it's also because we want to um, express our thanks to our current supporters and to hopefully bring Counterpunch to a new audience and to remind people that Counterpunch is, to a large extent, it has a major web presence, but Counterpunch is also a print magazine, and if you're not a subscriber to the magazine, I highly, highly recommend that you become one. Um, not only are you going to get some of the best analysis anywhere from the uh, from the the left that's not part of the controlled mainstream left, um, but you're also going to be a contributor. You're going to be someone who's helping to support truly independent media, and from my perspective as someone who's been doing independent media for a while now... I think it's of the most vital importance, especially today, if you consider the way in which the mainstream media operates, the way in which the pseudo-alternative media operates. Uh, you find that Counterpunch is really one of the very, very few centers of truly alternative analysis. And so again, I mean, I know that I reiterate that, I hammer that point home, but I think it is of vital importance. And so with all of that being said, um, it's really my pleasure to have Paul Street on the program with me today. Um, Paul is a regular contributor to Counterpunch. You can find his work on Counterpunch regularly. He's also the author of a number of important books, um, most recently, and one that comes very highly recommended, They Rule the 1% versus Democracy. Um, Paul is also, um, well, he might he might uh, blush a little when I say it, but he's one of the experts on Barack Obama, on Obama's rise, on Obama's presidency, and having a critical analysis of that. I recommend both of his books, his 2008 book, Barack Obama and the Future of American Politics, as well as the follow-up from 2010, The Empire's New Clothes, Barack Obama and the Real World of Power. Um, Paul Street, you should go to his website, paulstreet.org. So with all of those plugs out of the way, Paul Street, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Uh, thank you very much. Um, and I want to I want to begin our conversation by talking about something that I think is maybe a little bit uncomfortable for some people, although I, I God knows why that is. But it is this this question of liberals and liberalism. And I know you've written about this a lot. It's something that you've harped on many times before. And I think that your analysis of that is some of the best. So, you know, we hear a lot about liberals and the way in which liberal candidates, quote unquote, betray their base. So I want to interrogate the term a little bit. So just from your perspective, what is a liberal? What does that mean? And how do you understand that term? Well, um, I guess I'm old enough that it's, to me, it seems like it's changed in my lifetime. And I remember growing up in a liberal household in the 60s and the 70s. And it really uh, it had a sort of um, class aspect to it. And there was a sense of the be a liberal was to be a supporter of uh, labor unions. Uh, it was to be a supporter of, uh, of government programs that are you know, geared towards helping the poor, towards uh, an expanded safety net, towards more social and economic equality, um, you know, and various other um, aspects of it. Those are sort of the, some of the main things I remember about it, and a sincere commitment to racial justice, 
uh, deeply understood in terms of institutions and how they operate, you know, more inclusion, particularly um, in my youth of African Americans, more inclusion of African Americans in society. And um, that meaning really seems to have sort of been blown up from the uh, at least the mid-1970s and, and the 80s on, and liberal now seems to confer uh, much more of a um, kind of a cultural meaning uh, liberals are, are, are supportive of uh, things like gay marriage, you know, which, you know, any, any leftist, I think, is, has various reasons to support. Uh, there's, a, there's a kind of excitement that liberals might have over something like the notion of a, a, a black individual being in the White House, almost regardless of whether that individual is actually conducting policies that supports uh, the working class or support labor or support poor people or that advance equality. Those, those, those types of old-fashioned meanings seem to have faded. There's a very strong sense of identity politics. I think we're going to see that with Hillary Clinton around gender. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a very strong sense of partisan identification with... Um, with, with the Democratic Party that I suppose there always was, but it seems to, to have less of that socioeconomic and deep uh, class kind of meaning that it used to. So uh, it, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean the same thing uh, that it used to. It's, it's sort of been torn asunder from its old-time connections to labor, to the New Deal, and to, it's due to a sense of populism and has taken on a more kind of... Uh, um, cultural meaning, if that makes any sense. No, absolutely. I think you're 100% right. And I would just, my my take on it, and certainly there's a generational difference perhaps, but part of my take on it is that to be a liberal, it means to espouse some of these, um, you know, traditionally, you know, quasi left-wing or left-wing ideas, but to do so without any structural critique, no structural critique of capitalism. You're not allowed to talk about that. Otherwise, you come off sounding like a commie or something like that, that there there's, that there are certain things that liberals are simply not able to or allowed to question. And to me, that's one of those important dividing lines between someone who can call themselves a liberal and someone who is comfortable with the term like leftist or socialist or something along those lines. Yeah. Well, my, my grandfather was from working class Missouri and grew up in the early 20th century. And when he talked about you know, he was a liberal. He was, a, he was sort of a great society, a New Deal liberal. Uh, and when he talked about the rich and their arrogance and, and their power, he really had a sort of a chip on their shoulder about it. He was really still at his advanced age. And he lived up through Reagan and beyond, just really ticked about how the rich people run run everything. Um, and you don't hear that very much from people who call themselves liberals. One of the things that was sort of a, the last gasp of that type of sentiment that I saw in presidential politics in um, – here in Iowa, in 07 and 08, was John Edwards, who really sounded like an old-fashioned kind of liberal. I don't have any idea whether he meant it or not. But he used to sort of just go blow the roof off of town hall meetings when he was running for president, talking about uh, concentrated wealth and, and, and the two Americas. And I think he even used the phrase, the 1%. That he, you know, he would say repeatedly that controlled both of the, uh, both of the reigning political parties in this, this country. This sort of reminded me. Of that old kind of something you're going to see, and you are already seeing uh, Hillary Clinton uh, supposedly channeling um, um, 
Elizabeth Warren, mm -hmm. you know, bringing up, as happens every four years, Bill Clinton did it in 92, Edwards and Hillary did it in Iowa in, you know, 07 and 08. Uh, Obama actually did it a little bit less than they did. Uh, Obama uh, did, did a fair amount of it in 2012, and you're, we're going to be seeing Hillary and, and others doing it uh, this time around. A little of this old-time kind of talk, but it's, uh, it's much less heartfelt now. And it's much more sort of imposed by uh, by just sort of economic situation of the middle class, which is and working class, which is terrible now, sort of unavoidable. Uh, but they try and get and they try and get away from it, I think, and it, and it just doesn't have the kind of resonance that it used to. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just basically paying lip service to the you know to the traditional liberal lexicon, and then as soon as they have gotten through primary season, they quote unquote move to the center, and then all of a sudden, all of that drops away, and it becomes just the same old story. Well, uh, the 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 one the formerly left late Christopher Hitchens in his book on the Clintons that came out at the end of the '90s uh, once very usefully described the essence of American politics, as he put it. There's nothing new. He said it went back to Huey Long as as the manipulation of populism mm -hmm. by elitism, and and that's what the Democrats are just absolutely masters at. They do it in a in, in a they they do it in in a in, with a with a, a, a panache. Uh, and a studied uh, skill in, in ways that the Republicans can never quite pull off. That's what the Democrats do uh, every four years. Now, one of the silliest things that I've seen in left media recently um, was something on Alternet, where I don't remember the author, said that um, Bernie Sanders is keeping Hillary Clinton honest on trade. Uh, <laughs> she's keeping her honest. She's making her... Uh, 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 stay neutral on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is, of course, is a very corporate and regressive and neoliberal policy proposal. To make sure keep stay honest, that, well, it's, it's, it's sort of exactly the opposite. Uh, what he's, what what he, or more likely Elizabeth Warren, or more or more likely uh, uh, public opinion broadly, which is very opposed to things like NAFTA and and and, and the Trans-Pacific Partnership, what's doing is making is, is keeping her dishonest about trade. Yeah, it's making her pretend not to be an enthusiast of things like NAFTA and the Trans-Pacific Partnership. For example, you're exactly right for the campaign season. Yeah, you know, and, you know, and Bill Clinton ran against NAFTA, and you know, passionately uh, under the under the pressure of public opinion and Ross Perot in '91 and '92, and then proceeded to become its champion once he came in. You know, if and I would expect a similar kind of um, transformation, you know, uh, shift in in, a, in a Hillary Clinton administration. Yeah, I remember in 2008 when when every single candidate, if I remember correctly, had said something negative about NAFTA, and then it came out in the in the news. I think it was Obama made a trip to Canada, or, you know, in which they assured the Canadians, ah, "Don't worry, that's just that's just talk." Yeah, I think it, to some extent it was under it was the, the sort of the leftward populist rhetoric was pushed by Edwards, but it, but yeah, every one of them was. Um, was calling for the renegotiation of NAFTA, you know, yeah. with strong labor protections. And, and Austin Goolsby, who was Obama's um, neoliberal University of Chicago economics advisor, mm -hmm. it was leaked that he had said uh, that, in fact, the Obama uh, campaign had reassured exactly. the bourgeoisie of Canada, don't worry about this. Mm -hmm. uh, this is just how he has to talk in order <laughs> to get working-class votes to get elected, and we've had a redo of that with Hillary Clinton in, in, in a way recently, and I don't remember the exact date, but there's a fascinating article 
in Politico magazine about a month ago, which has these quotes from Hillary Clinton's uh, elite Wall Street hedge fund backers, uh, in, in which the political interviewer asked, them, are, you, are you disturbed at all about all this kind of populist language? You know, you know Hillary wants to you know, fix the game so it's not the deck isn't stacked for rich people anymore. She wants to represent their ordinary people. And, and, and these, these Wall Street election investors, these chieftains, uh, said flat out, oh, no, we, this doesn't concern us at all. It's what <laughs> American politicians have to say. Yeah. We get middle and working class votes, and once she's in, we know we, we, know we own her because we'll, we'll have made up the lion's share of her $2.5 billion campaign expenditure. Yeah, it's the collective it's the collective delusion that is, you know, electoral politics. And that kind of brings me to this question that I wanted to ask you. Um, you know, you recently had an article published in Counterpunch and I think it was published elsewhere as well, uh, entitled The Liberal Apologies for Obama's Ugly Reign. And I think I mean it was an ex- an excellent article and, you know, I think that it made a number of important points. And specifically, I think one of the things that you were getting at is the way in which liberals really managed to excuse Obama. Obama's serial betrayals, because I think that's really what they are. And I want to get your take on that and specifically on what does this tell us about liberals? And it seems to me that there's almost a desire to be deceived, a desire to unconsciously or consciously yeah. buy in to the lie that you might even know is a lie. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you're absolutely right when you say serial betrayal. I mean, it's just one thing after another. We, we haven't even had time here. To go through it, but I mean, if, if you know, if we did, you could. You know, civil libertarians, you know, Obama has thrown everybody under the under the bus, uh, uh, starting originally with his his mother and his preacher, right? Civil libertarians were thrown under the bus. Uh, uh, the black population that became particularly fervent, and for understandable reasons, I think, at first, in his support have gone under the bus. Labor has been thrown under the bus. Peace activists have been thrown under the bus. I mean, the, the so-called middle class, the, the working class majority, uh, under the bus, you know, in, in, in the face of the corporate bailouts, in the face of the failure to nationalize or break up the banks, thrown under the bus by a, um, a corporate health insurance reform, the so-called Affordable Health Care Act, you know, that only the great, the, the big six insurance companies and, and big pharma could possibly love. Um, I mean, one could, one could go on and on about the, uh, the foreign policies and, and the military policies. Now, I, I was one who, um, in my original book, and in many write on, on Obama, and in, my, and, and, and in uh, many internet writings and print media writings before that book, really starting back in 04, I was one of the sort of hardy cadre of left intellectuals. I was particularly energetic in this regard. I think in part because I knew a lot about Obama because I was from the south side of Chicago and had worked in the civil rights agencies and had to deal with them and never had the slightest illusion about it at all. Um, but I was one who, despite the fact that I predicted, I mean, that sounds like boasting, but it really wasn't that hard to do. I predicted about all of these policy outcomes of the Obama administration. Nonetheless, uh, when 08 came up and it was uh, uh, Obama versus McCain, I uh, really sort of wanted Obama to win for kind of an unusual reason. I, I, I thought um, that that it was necessary, particularly for millennials and young kids, to have that experience 
that the new left had in the early 1960s, when you went from the long Republican 1950s to the supposedly shining new charismatic presidency of JFK and subsequently LBJ, you know, that, that millennials needed desperately the experience of seeing that, that, that you know, corporations still rule, imperial policies uh, uh, still reign, uh, uh, the environment continues to be under assault, you know, and everything still kind of sucks when you have a Democrat and even a charismatic, shiny, uh, telegenic president with, you know, with an identity politics boost to it, you know, first mm-hmm. black president. And, um, you know, that that would be, you couldn't just blame everything on the Republicans. You had to see the system. Um, and I think there was some of that kind of dialectical dividend and payoff with Obama. Uh, that kind of lessened the system. I think you saw some of that uh, with Occupy. And I think you see some of that um, with younger, working and lower class, and, and middle class, blacks, with the Black uh, Lives Matter, Matter movement. But there hasn't been as anywhere near as much of that sort of underside, whiplash, uh, uh, disappointed, hopes, thesis, you know, there hasn't been enough of that as I thought, and I've been sort of thinking about why that might be, and there's still these, um, even when you have a, a, even when you have a, 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 a Democrat in the White House, there's still this narrative um, that, that he really was progressive and wanted to do all these progressive things, yeah. but he was obstructed yeah. by, by that all by the GOP <laughs> and by Fox News. You know, you know, none of which has anything to do with the reality of Obama, which is sort of he's even described himself as kind of an Eisenhower Republican. I think actually Eisenhower Republican would be too far left for him. But in the awfulness of the GOP, I mean, yeah. we should not, you know, as much as I, I, I am repeatedly nauseated by the dismal, dollar-drenched, neoliberal Democrats. You know, I, I try to remember that, 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 that the Republicans have gone so far ridiculously, right? I mean, even the mainstream Republican intellectual Norman Orn, Ornstein is right, so you refer to the Republican Party as an apocalyptic cult. I think the awfulness of the Republicans, uh, you know, much of which is enabled by the dismalness of the Democrats, the awfulness exactly. of the Republicans, uh, uh, feeds the narrative. I mean, one of the great ironies of the whole thesis that, that Obama uh, can't get good progressive things, which he supposedly wants to do, uh, one of the ironies of that is that the Republican Party that's obstructing him because, and, and, and that's empowered by the congressional elections of 2010 and again of 2014, uh, has the power it does precisely because he, he made policy in such strict accord with the dictates of, of, of the corporations and, and the elite Wall Street exactly. institutions. I mean, he, he would have preempted the Tea Party Rebellion. He would have, at the very least, marginalized it. If he and, and it would have been very good politics for him. This is something that Tom Frank wrote about recently, you know, sort of forgetting the fact that he himself had been a great liberal Obama apologist back in 07 and 08. But, but it, it would have been immensely popular if Obama had pushed forward on a nationalization of the banks or a breakup of the banks, and furthermore, on a, on a major green jobs stimulus program. And for that matter, if he'd had a real and open health care policy debate, which had included single-payer insurance, and the fact that he had had the courage to advance a single-payer model, which he once as an Illinois senator, 
had advanced, all of that would have, have, have you know, in his first term, he had a majority in both houses of Congress, and he had a hugely angry populace. Uh, you know, with the with the, with the pitchforks drawn, which was ready to defenestrate the Wall Street chieftains and um, and, and a white working class. You know, all this notion that race prevented Obama from doing progressive things. Well, we would have been immensely popular with much of the white working class. Well, and you know, Obama Paul had actually made left policy. He didn't. They all the anger got sucked, and, and, and liberal media went to his defense, and all the legitimate anger in the country got absurdly sucked up by and co-opted by the far right-wing and right-wing talk radio and the, and the fake populist, Koch brother-funded Tea Party rebellion. And that's, and you know, insofar as is, is it, whatever liberal impulses he's, he's had have been obstructed, it's been, it's been because of that. Well, and, and, and exactly that moment, at exactly that moment when he had all of that cachet, when he had all of that leverage, when he had a Democratic Congress, at precisely right. that moment, what does he do? He invites the Wall Street bankers to the White House to dictate what the economic recovery package is going to look like. I mean, I the think top that... 13 bankers of the country are invited to the Lincoln Room, and right. they are trembling. And this, this I think, is a wonderful episode in Ron Susskind, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, book "Confidence Men," which is which is a book that's broadly about the complete penetration of the Obama administration by Wall Street chieftains like 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 Larry Summers. Um, but there's yeah, there's this remarkable scene, and they're all sitting there, uh, and, and 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 these guys are are practically shaking, you know, which which almost never happens to Wall Street chieftains. Uh, the public, their public opinion numbers are looking terrible. People are calling for their, their <laughs> for their blood in the streets, and Obama walks in and he says, "You know, right now, gentlemen, I'm the only thing between you and the pitchforks. Uh, but relax. Literally, I'm here to protect you. You have a public relations problem, and I'm here to help. And you know, they talked for an hour, and in, in confidential reports to Susskind from within the financial, he says." Uh, it was a great relief, and you know, and from that point on, they knew they had nothing to worry about from. Yeah, exactly. Pseudo populist Obama. And, you great, know, great moment. One of the things that one of the things that I find most difficult to swallow about all of this is um, that. If you look at the if you look at the headlines today, I mean, what are some of the top stories in the headlines? You have you have uh, an oil spill damaging the beaches of Southern California. You have an eviscerated working class. You have you know you have uh, wars raging in the Middle East, in North Africa, and in Eastern Europe. And what were Obama's policies? Pro offshore oil drilling to push the Trans Pacific Partnership to meddle in you know to get involved in Ukraine and to have a war in Libya and to create all of these. Conflicts. I mean, all of these, all of these policies of his have led directly to a lot of these problems. And yet, when you look at it, just as you said, it's literally still the fallback. It's still well because of Bush, well because of Republicans, well because of obstructionism. And this is kind of that self delusion that I'm really that I'm talking about. Well, we recently had this remarkable um, uh, report that Obama had opened up the Arctic Sea, uh, you know, the pristine. Region 75, 70 miles off the Alaska coast, called the Chukchi Sea. I'm probably mispronouncing that. Oh, uh, you know, it's just something environmentalists have been, been warning about forever. That it's madness to drill there. And Obama gave Royal Dutch Shell, multinational corporation, mm-hmm. the okay to go in there. And then the front page of the New York Times says environmental groups uh, were surprised by this decision. And it's like, <laughs> why? Yeah. Why, why are they surprised? He earlier this year uh, opened up. 
parts of the Atlantic coast and the southern United States to deep water drilling. At the end of last year, he gave Big Petroleum a, uh, a quiet Christmas gift uh, of, for, for allowing them to export crude oil, um, in, which will help them ex- ultimately export carbon-rich tar sand oil around the world. I mean, this is the president who almost single-handedly undermined um, desperate international efforts to set carbon emission limits on, on the rich nations in Copenhagen in 2009, and then again and did, did the same in, in subsequent desperate, failed uh, 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 global climate change. I mean, you know, what's the surprise? I mean, you mentioned um, the wars that are ravaging this Islamic State, uh, which is just this extraordinary, new barbaric and arch-reactionary phenomenon. Uh, its strength is, is, is to no small extent very much an outcome precisely of his imperial policy vis-a-vis Assad and vis-a-vis Syria. Exactly. Uh, that kind of jihadism was dying out in Iraq and was thrown a lifeline and was given a new lease on life precisely by this insane, prolonged uh, um, U.S. and Western armed rebellion. Right? Most of the arms, in fact, yes, it's very predictable, Going to um, uh, going to jihadists, you know. Uh, the Islamic State apparently has a foot apparently has a foothold in Libya. Yeah, uh, well, precisely and, because of the anarchy and chaos created, and, opening the door for jihadism because of Obama's bombing of that country. And you know, you can go into Africa. You know, he has no. He, Bush has him begun body counts. Okay, I mean, when you, when you think how many people were killed because of the invasion of Iraq, but Obama really has Bush beat on scope of killing. You know, he with, with special forces and above all with these drone attacks, he has broadened the scope of jihad um, uh, more than any president uh, ever. That's but right. He's broadened and, the scope and of anti-Americanism. Let's not forget, too, that the report that, uh, that, you, that you're referring to with regard to ISIS having a foothold in Libya, the intelligence sources are saying that the leadership, the, that the singular leader of the ISIS groups in Libya is none other than Abdelhaki uh, uh, Belhaj, and Belhaj was... Surely enough, he was the leader of the Libyan Islamic fighting group supported by the U.S. and NATO to overthrow Gaddafi. So, I mean, isn't, it, isn't it interesting yeah. that literally yeah. the individual who was being touted by McCain and Obama right and left as the hero of Libya is now leading ISIS in Libya? I mean, wouldn't you know right. it? Right. You know, and all of this is all sort of very much um, as predicted by some of us on the left, including, I think, uh, the late Alexander Coburn at Counterpunch, who was never a fan of Obama, my friends Glenn Ford and Bruce Dixon and Margaret Kimberly and others at Black Agenda Report, yep. uh, the wonderful Australian intellectual and filmmaker John Hilger, you know, and, uh, and others. I did not um, initially, when my publisher asked me to write a second book, about Obama. I didn't want to do it. You know, it ended up being called The Empire's New Clothes. It was, it was just on the first year. You know, I, I didn't want to have a second book with Obama's name in the title. I didn't want to sort of get pigeonholed as, a, as an author who was obsessed about Obama. I mean, I write about a lot of things, you know, mm-hmm. more broadly, I write about systemic issues. But I, um, I sort of begrudgingly agreed to write this second book, The Empire's New Clothes. Um, and I'm glad I did now in retrospect, because it captures this right-wing policy in that first year uh, when he's got majorities in both houses of Congress and an angry uh, and an angry population ready to defenestrate Wall Street 
and all in all these hopes. You know, he's still riding the wave, and he can't blame the right wing. You know, it, 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 the book is really sort of an antidote, as you ask me, to to those who who blame it all on obstruction. I mean, yeah. he, he's he's governing well to the right uh, before the before the Tea Party were done. Yeah, and, exactly. and really from the get go, from the very beginning. Definitely, definitely. So let's take a break. And on the other side of the break, I want to I want to continue this conversation, but I want to bring it forward to today um, and examining what the you know the let's call it the mainstream left, what that establishment is doing, and how it's looking in the uh, upcoming twenty sixteen presidential election. So uh, on the other side of the break, we'll continue my conversation with Paul Street. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. Thanks so much. We'll be right back. One spot. I ain't scared of reality, I'd rather just embrace it. No religious views, but that don't mean that I'm faithless. Hope based on rational grounds is in the people. Socialism's dead, well here's the starting of this sequel. Far as I'm concerned, it should be common sense. That our current way of life ain't really light to begin with. Start of human history will be the very onslaught of the revolution. When this clash, it'll stop. Or maybe I should say, Rather kicked in the high gear Capitalist fools will be running off in fear Ideas don't change the world alone People have to do it And with the people's enemies Our struggle must be ruthless Beaten down, lied to Often feeling tired But a single spark can start The entire uprising I will never be subservient Trust in their process Truly it's played out as past being monstrous First U.S. revolution was indeed progressive But quick the star spangled banner would correct I'm a socialist, more than just a theorist. That means I keep it militant. The boss man's nemesis. Wreck the organizers, nine to five grinders. Homeless in the downtrodden, true freedom fighters. I'm a socialist, more than just a theorist. That means I keep it militant. The boss man's nemesis. Wreck the organizers, nine to five grinders. Homeless in the downtrodden. And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Paul Street. And, you know, we've talked about a lot of different issues. We're talking about what what it means to be a quote-unquote liberal in 2015 in the United States. We've talked about – and, I mean, I understand that to some degree we're being a little U.S.-centric here. But um, I think that this in in many ways is broadly true to a large extent in the the Western world these days. But – um, Paul, I wanted to talk a little bit about what I would call the new normal and this new normal that Obama is very much, um, I think, instrumental in having established. And what I mean by that is this under the veneer of liberalism, under the veneer of, you know, reformers or whatever, you have these Democrats who are really corporate privatizers. And I mean, I'm in New York, so certainly Andrew Cuomo is perfectly in that category. Of course, Cory Booker is well, well known as in many ways sort of an up and coming um, well, I, I don't know, second coming of Obama in many ways. Um, Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton, of course, we all know is a, is a known quantity. And all of them are privatizers. All of them are corporate stooges. That's really how they kind of operate. And I think this was definitely true before Obama. But would you say that it's sort of fair to say that his success and the continued support that he's been able to garner from many liberals is kind of like enshrining this as the new identity of Democrats? Democrats is the new identity of liberals? Huh. Well, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, uh, around the, the principle of identity and identity politics is something I think that Obama has brought to 
to that long-standing sellout, I mean, I think you're right. It goes, it goes way back. Um, but, but the notion that you can paint it along with some sort of fake progressive facade, um, you know, through identity politics, I think that's sort of, and that's why I sort of think of Cory Booker. I was half expecting Cory Booker to be showing up in Iowa this year, but I think he's waiting for for a while. He definitely has presidential ambitions. I mean, I think that's, but I mean, I, you know, the notion that it's um, it's not it's not new. I think it is important. Uh, um, this this all really goes back to um, um, the seventies. Um, you know, and it's 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 not so much Nixon. You know, in sort of contrast with Rick Perlstein, you know, the uh, the left the left liberal journalist in Chicago. You know, it's written this book, Nixon, Nixon Land. You know, so Nixon is this great bridge over to, to the right, sort of Carter, Carter Land. You know, and and it's really sort of the 1970s when mm-hmm. when you think about it. And um, and there's this this um, sense in the power elite going back then um, that there's a crisis in democracy in the country, by which they mean, uh, I mean, Samuel P. Huntington, the elite right wing neoconservative. Uh, Harvard political scientist on crisis of democracy, which, you, which you, when you interrogate the term, means the crisis is that there's too much democracy <laughs> in America. And they're looking at the rebellions. Of the, the crisis 60s. of the ruling class. Yeah. And, there's, and they're looking at the, these really remarkable and wide-ranging popular rebellions that emerge in the 60s and 70s. And I think legitimately, to some extent, they're perceiving a loss of faith in um not just racism, not just the Vietnam War, but in capitalism more broadly. And they mm-hmm. talk a lot about Ralph Nader and his advocacy for consumers against big business. Um, and there's this famous memo by, you know, Lewis Powell, this big high-level uh, corporate attorney, uh, who writes this famous memo in 1971, about four months before he's going to become Nixon's uh, Supreme Court uh, appointee, in which he says, um, you know, we have to turn the tide. We have to we have to reverse um, we we have to reverse this popular upsurge and this huge public relations investment and there's this huge investment of, of, of public money in turning hurt hearts and minds back towards the marketplace and back towards corporations and 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 and, and back towards big business you know, and the press is brought back to heel after the excesses of Watergate and you know and the Vietnam coverage. Uh, the black population, um, which no longer has any industry to work in anymore in Detroit or Chicago or Pittsburgh or anywhere else, is 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 is, is incarcerated in the name of war on war on drugs. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's that, that, that there's this this, this sort of big top down ruling class campaign, which is militantly um, bipartisan. Uh, there's also a change in global capitalism. You know, with a return of European and Japanese competition, thanks in part to American protection, after they get back on their feet after World War II's, you know, after the devastation experienced during World War II. Um, and, you know, it all, in my book, They Rule, I talk about about something that Aristotle used to talk about, which Aristotle was a very interesting thinker in his time, and he knew that economic inequality uh, and God knows we have economic inequality today. It's just, it's now commonplace to refer to the current era as a new gilded age in American history. Economic inequality, and, and for Aristotle, 
and for and for others, Jefferson and and, and other American founders, subsequent, uh, and and democracy are fundamentally incompatible uh, with one another. And and what Aristotle said is the way you can handle that con- you can handle that contradiction in two ways: you can reduce the inequality enough that. Um, that 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 democracy becomes tolerable, uh, or you can reduce the democracy. Well, you know, between 1932 and the mid-1970s, the ruling class of the United States was basically forced to and agreed to uh, uh, reduce inequality in this country. Since the 1970s, they've opted for less and less uh, uh, democracy, which is really the return to form. It's the return to the norm. For, for the profit system. It's one of the very things I like about Thomas Piketty's book, Capital in the 21st Century, is he shows that that leveling, that downward leveling, that increase of equality, and to some extent democracy, between the 30s and the 70s in Western capital society, that, that was the anomalous. We're really sort of back to the norm. I mean, what's interesting about Bill and Hillary is that they were key players in on-the-ground in Arkansas, before they became national politicians, in forwarding that Lewis Powell project of, of regression and upward mm-hmm. wealth distribution and upward power con- concentration, uh, from the governor's office in Arkansas from the late from the late seventies through through the nineteen uh, eighties. So, I mean, that's something you can't say about Obama. If you bring the Clintons back in the White House, which is a distinct possibility because of the dysfunction of the Republicans, you're bringing back pioneer players yep. in what became known as uh, the New Democrats, or, or and, and what congealed in the form of the Democratic Leadership Council, which was sort of the, the uh, think tank arm and agent of, of that neoliberal market-friendly, uh, big business-friendly, union-shredding, civil rights-shredding, environmentalism-abandoning trend uh, in, in the Democratic Party. They, they pioneered that from the beginning, and then they started off in Arkansas attacking teachers' unions um, and, and, and attacking labor and citizens' groups. And, uh, Oh, yeah, and pioneers the, of that. Right? They weren't. They were certainly not the first uh, Democrats to be cozy with Wall Street. But I think that to a large extent, the Democratic Leadership Council that you're referring to, and just their political career and the trajectory of their political career more broadly, um, I think it really is in many ways sort of emblematic of this of this Wall Streetization of the Democratic Party, which to a large extent, uh, I think a lot of people are still harboring delusions of some kind of Democratic Party of. 50, 60 years ago, when in fact it's really just the, the let's call it the blue tie and the left arm of Wall Street. Well, you know, the Clintons never, and never have and never will, forgot who really owns the place. Yeah. They've always understood that. Uh, uh, Clinton was lectured about that by his financial advisors at the beginning when he came to the White House, and he, he stepped into line immediately. It's kind of interesting in that regard to... Um, you know, all these horrible things presidents have done, you know, in, you know, Nixon invading Cambodia, Johnson assaulting Indochina, Clinton and his, uh, his economic sanctions he imposed on Iraq, killing by half a million Iraqi children, you know, bombing Serbia, starting a new Cold, Cold War. With Russia. I mean, you go on with the transgressions of, of presidents from, well, forever, really, but when things think of Nixon yeah. and Clinton, and what almost undid them. Nixon and Clinton both um, 
in, in during their times in office were trivialities. You know, Watergate, a, 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 a sort of a petty burglary of the Democratic Party headquarters, or in, in Clinton's case, um, in Clinton's case, you know, one of his countless sexual escapades. You know, his 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 his, his cigar and fellatio fiasco with with yeah. Monica Lewinsky. But Clinton stays, and Nixon doesn't. And I think what in the it's, it's, it's actually very instructive why they, why, they, why those two guys had different outcomes. Clinton never forgot who owned the place. Nixon pissed off multinational corporations yes. and international banks when he took the country off of the gold standard. When, when, he, when he tore up Bretton Woods in 1971, when he took the country off of the gold standard, uh, got rid of convertibility of, of the dollar, uh, and imposed some import duties. And, you know, a lot of big corporate players on Wall Street did not like that. He had a lot of powerful enemies. Uh, Bill always knew which side his bread, his bread was his bread was buttered on. Yeah, exactly. And, and <laughs> trust me, so does Hillary. You know, um, and of course, his administration was a monument to financial deregulation. Yeah, exactly. Not to mention so-called, not to mention so-called free trade. <laughs> uh, let's. Which we, is really we probably, investor rights. We could probably do yeah. an entire. We could probably do an entire episode just on that. But um, you know, we're we're running out of time, and before we before we do. Um, I have to bring us forward to today because, um, you know, we've spent a lot of time here today talking about liberal delusions or illusions and delusions. And um, one thing that strikes me that I think is really critical to talk about, you know, in 2012, Counterpunch Contributors, um, uh, there was a book that was put together, edited by Jeff Sinclair and Joshua Frank, entitled Hopeless, sure. Barack Obama and the Politics of Illusion. And the reason I'm referencing that title is not really so much that book, although it's a great book and people should pick it up if they don't have it, but it's this question of illusion because I think that we're seeing something similar right now with a lot of left activists today and uh, as it regards Bernie Sanders. And I think that in, in many ways Bernie Sanders is really just yet another illusion that's dangled in front of liberal eyes in order to you know more or less convince them that they have a choice when in fact they really don't, that I don't think that Bernie Sanders is really a choice for them, but rather rather, is just filling a role. Right. Yeah, um, I'm not very impressed by the Sanders thing. I think it's really not much different than the role that Jesse Jackson played in the 1980s or that Dennis Kucinich uh, played in more recent elections. It's what the left uh, black activist uh, Bruce Dixon has called the sheepdog role. The Democrats always disappoint because they're dismal dollar Democrats who are, who are every bit as captive to corporations and Wall Street as Republicans are. So they make promises and they betray them and they get in and people wander away from the Democratic Party. They don't want to vote for the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. They either uh, decide not to vote or they, or they even, you know, how scandalous think about voting for third party left candidates. So they have to vote some people out there to be more substantively or at least sound more substantively progressive and populist as, as Bruce calls it a sheepdog. But to bring them to bring them back into the party, though I would actually say that the Bernie role, the Sanders role is even a little bit worse than Sheepdog. I mean when you talk about you know, he's he's he is technically rejoining the Democratic Party. He's yeah. been technically an independent. He's been a de facto Democrat. But he's maintained this technical uh, independent status from his Vermont history in the Progressive Party there. And so he's actually bringing himself back into the Democratic Party in order to keep more voters in the Democratic Party. I almost think it's worse than Sheepdog in the sense that it's also when he brings them back, he comes up to Hillary and gives her a big, fake, populist uh, uh, sort of lick and shine. 
I mean, his role here is sort of to paint fake populist lipstick onto this thoroughly corrupt and plutocratic uh, election system. Uh, I, I would not. I, I don't want to be conspiracy theorist, and I'm not saying that the Clintons ordered it, you know, or approved it. But there's a reason the Clintons are very happy that Bernie Sanders Sanders introduced and threw his hat in the ring in Iowa and New Hampshire. I mean, they knew what their real threat was. They knew what really scared them. And, and, and by the way, this was already the, the Elizabeth Warren thing is what I'm talking about. And, and, and it was already enough to push uh, Hillary's rhetoric to the populist left. You know, anyone who tells you Bernie's been doing that, you know, it's just that they're, they're smoking something. You know, Elizabeth Warren did it. That was a real threat. Uh, that, that might have lit a fire and undid her chances for an early victory in Iowa and an early victory in New Hampshire. Now, when Warren says no, and she seems to really mean it, their, 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 their danger for the Clintons was sort of an opposite one, which is it was going to be too transparently a Wall Street-funded coronation, mm -hmm. right? For, I mean, the Clintons, what was it, how many millions of dollars hundreds of millions of dollars that they've gotten mainly from big business interests, just from speaking events, you know, in the last year. And, you know, what Sanders does is help Hillary appear to have emerged victorious out of Iowa, out of New Hampshire, not because she's going to be spending $2.5 billion of mostly very rich folks' money, but because she supposedly emerged uh, victorious from a quote-unquote real debate about the issues in Iowa, you know, and uh, you know anyone on the left, and there are some tendencies on the left, I understand, who who are saying that, um, well, work with the Bernie Sanders thing, and then when the primaries are over, push him to either run for president as a third-party independent or to tell people to vote for a third-party independent, you know, are, are, are paying no more attention to what he's actually saying. That's right. Than, than to what Obama was really saying, which if you looked beneath the surface rhetoric, if you looked at his website in 07 and 08, would have revealed a very centrist, neo pragmatic, corporate neoliberal. And if I could, um, can I just... Bernie has just said flat out, I will be a spoiler. <laughs> you know, and what's funny about that, too, is I remember, I've actually, I interviewed Mike Gravel about this issue and talking about those debates oh, that sure. he was a part of. And, you know... I remember very clearly how absolutely insane it was people talking about Obama and talking about peace and, and ending wars and stuff when he's up there on the stage saying he would bomb Pakistan without authorization. He would bomb he, – he would expand the war in it Afghanistan. Was there. He, he literally right. said it uh, right there on the stage in front of millions and millions of people and they still yep. couldn't see it. And that is part of the reason why when I look at Bernie Sanders, for example, I have to think, wait a second – this is the same guy who supported the bombing of Serbia. This is the same guy who continues to support Israel and Israel's continued oppression of the Palestinians. The same guy who voted for authorization in Afghanistan. I mean, you could go on and on about this. It's the same guy who approved and applauded uh, 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 an F-35 exactly. in the name of God exactly. in Vermont. Well, but here, here's something that's interesting, though. I mean, Dennis Kucinich and Jesse Jackson used to uh, uh, at least pose as opponents of empire and military spending. I mean, maybe, maybe Dennis Smith, I don't know. I mean, uh, 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 Bernie Sanders isn't even including in his 
program anything about the need to cut the defense budget. Yeah. Uh, which is really kind of, you know, amazing. And, and, and I suppose ISIS, the, the context of ISIS, you know, in the new war of terror, uh, is part of that, but it's it's really kind of interesting, particularly in relationship to the fact that he's gone on national television and told George Stephanopoulos and whoever else is listening that he is an advocate of um, of a Nordic model, a Scandinavian model of of social democracy or democratic socialism or whatever. I mean, you can, I mean, and you know, one of the things that's omitted from 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 that is that those countries spend about three percent of their budgets on the military, yeah. whereas we spend fifty three or fifty four percent of federal discretionary spending on military. How's he getting fun of these progressive things? There's some of them which are very good, you know, which you, are not run of the mill things that you hear from progressive Democrats. You know, how does he have fun for them uh, without without dealing with that empire question, the question of empire and the Pentagon budget? He also has absolutely nothing to say in his twelve point program, as far as I can tell, about the, about black civil rights and crisis of. Um, of, of cop shootings across this country, which is a remarkable deletion. Well, and actually part of the reason, I think, is because those two things are connected. The militarization of the police is, goes hand-in-hand hand with the military-industrial complex, and if you're not going to sure. challenge one side of that, how are you going to you know, realistically challenge the other side? Right. So, you well, know, I mean, the left is still trying to sort out, I guess, the left such as it is, is trying to sort out how to, um, how to respond to the Bernie thing. Uh, I have been sort of lectured about the need to be polite, and the need to be to sort of bite my tongue, um, and one of the reasons I can't really quite do that, it might be because I, it's just in my face. Because I'm in Iowa, and I have, I have a front row front row seat at this thing. Uh, and I will tell you a little anecdote, which may or may not be interesting to you and your audience. But I was invited late last year to a meeting in Iowa City, went down to the Iowa City Public Library uh, to, to talk about Bernie. And I sort of just went as a listener, not really as an activist, more of as a journalist. Um, and it was all these very nice uh, 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 sort of left Democrats, progressive people around the table. They went around the table, and everyone was asked to um, introduce themselves and just say a little bit about their politics. And there must have been 25 people there, and I swear to God, every single one of them, except me, and a lady across the table from me who was a member of the Green Party led with a statement of how they had all these progressive and liberal and even socialistic hopes and expectations for Barack Obama. And now they were sorely disappointed. <laughs> I mean, and, and, you know, and then when it came to me, I said, no, this is precisely the Obama that I predicted and tried to warn you all about. And, you know, that can, that living continuity of delusion, um, that, and that it's the same group of people, is very consistent with, with what you were just saying a moment ago there. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think... Um... I think that part of the reason, I mean, I don't know, it, it sort of occurs to me that it's sort of like a fool me once, shame on you, fool me 46,000 times in a row, and uh, we start to really question exactly what the politics of the left really is. I mean, we're saying the left when we know that really what we're talking about is the the, 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 the left wing of the right wing of American politics, because that's really where the Democratic Party is, and for Bernie Sanders to make himself a part of that, and I, I look, I know you didn't want 
want to you didn't want to say you know call conspiracy on it necessarily, but I'll say it. I mean, I have every belief that Bar- the whole Bernie Sanders campaign is nothing but a manufactured uh, uh, way of doing basically upholding the left flank for Hillary Clinton. Listen, I think that's entirely possible. Uh, I will tell you, and I I remember this very clearly from 07 in Iowa, that everybody knew here that that Chris Dodd, remember the sort of hapless Chris Dodd Mm -hmm. uh, uh, from Connecticut, was was only in this state uh, at the behest of the the Clintons. I mean, um, you know, if, if I go to a town hall, and ever have and, and 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 have a chance to ask Bernie Sanders a question. One of them, uh, w- one thing I think I'll say to him is, "What are you doing here? And what would you your your purported hero? You know, his hero is supposedly King Obama's hero is Dr. King, right? That's a joke. Uh, and his, his hero and Bernie's hero is supposedly uh, Eugene Debs. What would the great socialist Eugene Debs think about your decision to reenlist in the other capitalist party?" Uh, to run for president in Iowa and New Hampshire and all over the country. You know, that's going to be a nice carbon footprint flying all over the country to, to, for that. But when you could have run and probably won as a third-party candidate in Vermont and campaigned on and very possibly redeemed and brought back to life single-payer health insurance for the working and poor people and the whole population of Vermont, uh, which would be which would be an arguably significant progressive left leaning victory in this country, probably a bigger deal than Kashami Sawant uh, winning a city council seat in Seattle and pushing through, uh, um, you know, the fifteen the fight for fifteen. Yep. You know, I'm not against all electoral politics, and you know things like Sawant. If I lived in Seattle, I would vote for her. I, I'm, I'm, you know. Um, the, the fellow, the socialist alternative guy, I'm blanking on his name right now, that ran in the Twin Cities, they voted for him. You know, around a fight for a 15. I think there, there are things you can do electorally, particularly on the local level. You know, nationally, uh, um, it, it's just so plutocratic. And it, 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 to have a national politics that would really be worthy of citizen engagement probably requires not simply a not simply constitutional amendments, but a wholesale rewriting of the U.S. Constitution with an entirely new set of rules and procedures yeah. uh, for, for our party system and our election system. I totally agree. Well, um, I think unfortunately we're going to have to uh, we're going to have to end it there. We're running out of time, but um, I want to remind listeners that um, this this uh, this conversation that you heard me have with Paul Street. I mean, there's so much information that we didn't even get a chance to touch on. So I remind you to check out his most recent book, "They Rule: The One Percent Versus Democracy," and to know all of that history about Barack Obama. Those two other books, Barack Obama and the Future of American Politics, and The Empire's New close. Both of those books are really, I think, crucial, not only to understanding Obama, but to really understanding a lot of the way in which these candidates are manufactured. And um, so Paul Street's work, you can find it uh, quite often on Counterpunch, as well as ZNet, Black Agenda Report, and uh, make sure you go to his website, paulstreet.org. Did I miss anything, Paul? No, that's super. Thank you. Excellent. Well, Paul, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. I really appreciate it. You bet. Thanks a lot. And listeners, thanks as always. And please uh, do think about contributing to Counterpunch with a print magazine subscription and uh, keep downloading the podcast. It's much appreciated. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon. (laughs) 